Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Today we're beginning a new series through the Gospel of Luke. If you did not feel that we addressed something that you were hoping we would address in the Faith and Doubt series, I'd be happy to help you chew on whatever ponderings you may still have over coffee. Uh, Just hit me up. The Gospel of Luke begins like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the reliability of the things you have been taught. What is it that causes us to believe what someone else is telling us? A massive amount of what we tell ourselves that we know is based on believing and trusting what other people tell us. So when I'm walking through Fred Meyer, the grocery store, and I'm looking for where the fresh salsa is, and I ask someone with a Freddy shirt on, hey, can you tell me where the fresh salsa is? And they say, oh, it's over in the fresh produce section in the cooler. I don't say to them, well, how do I know you aren't just making that up so that I'll leave you alone? I don't say that to them. I just push my grocery cart towards the produce section and I start looking for the salsa. And it happens all the time. And I don't just mean that I'm looking for fresh salsa all the time. I mean, it happens all the time that someone tells all of us something and we believe it we trust it we just run with it but that doesn't mean that we don't trust uncritically because at the same time that we believe we're alert we are aware we're factoring in the possibility they they might be mistaken they might be new on the job they might have their details mixed up maybe they are trying to deceive us for some sort of reason What is it that causes us to believe what someone else is telling us? And where we really run into conundrums is when there are different voices saying different things. So it's when you walk up to someone with a Freddy shirt on and you say, hey, where's the fresh salsa? And they say, it's over in the fresh produce section in the cooler. I just stocked it yesterday. But then just as you're turning to head towards the produce section, Another shopper walks by and says, hey, I overheard your question, and actually I just came from aisle 16, and the salsa is over on aisle 16. And now which person are you going to believe? And which direction are you going to push your cart? 
Will you trust the person who happened to overhear your question as they walked by and they think they know the answer? I mean, you could say they're an eyewitness of sorts. Or will you trust the person who was there from the beginning when the salsa was taken out of the boxes and put on the shelves? The very first note that Luke sounds in the opening of his gospel is the importance of eyewitnesses who were there from the beginning, the living voice, or the living voices. The living voice, eyewitness testimony, was massively important in the first century. So let me introduce you to another writer from the first century. His name is Papias, and Papias was the first early Christian writer out of the New Testament who tells us anything about the origin of the Gospels. Papias writes this. He says, I shall not hesitate also to put into properly ordered form for you everything I learned carefully in the past from the elders and noted down well, for the truth of which I vouch. For unlike most people, I did not enjoy those who have a great deal to say, but those who teach the truth. Nor did I enjoy those who recall someone else's commandments, but those who remember the commandments given by the Lord to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. And if by chance anyone who had been in attendance on the elders should come my way, I inquired about the words of the elders, that is, what Andrew or Peter said, or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any other of the Lord's disciples, and whatever Aristion, he's one of the 72 disciples of Jesus, uh, and the elder John, the Lord's disciples were saying, for I did not think that information from books would profit me as much as information from a living and surviving voice. So he sounds a lot like Luke there. Papias didn't want to hear random stories from random people about Jesus. Papias wanted to hear from the living and the surviving voices the people who actually were eyewitnesses of Jesus from the beginning. The living voice was massively important in the first century. The ancient surgeon, doctor, medical researcher Galen also wrote about the preference for the living voice as a very commonplace preference among the craftsmen of the day. He said that gathering information out of a book is not the same thing. It's not even comparable to learning from the living voice. So this preference for the living voice, it was not anything new. 500 years earlier, the philosopher Plato had said something similar. He said there was danger in writing things down and that he thought human memories were the best way to get things right and pass them on. So, I offer a reflection question, a discussion question that we discussed together on Sunday. How do we relate to eyewitness testimony and firsthand stories in the 21st century, in our modern day? In what ways do we prioritize eyewitness testimony and treat them as weighty? 
And in what ways do we downplay eyewitness testimony? So, so think about talk show interviews, podcast interviews, journalism, social media, on and on. There's so many different directions that you can go here. So take some time and reflect on that. There's a New Testament scholar at Cambridge. His name is Richard Bauckham, and he wrote a groundbreaking book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And I want to share a part of what he points out. So he looks at the people who are named in the Gospels and the people who are not named. The number of named and not named individuals in the Gospels are pretty much equal. For instance, I think I came up with 43 and 43 uh, in the Gospel of Luke. But why are some people named and why are some people not named? So, for instance, in the Gospel of Luke, the vast majority of people who were healed by Jesus remain anonymous. We don't know their names. Uh Take the story of the bleeding woman as an example. She is not given a name. But interestingly, within that very same story, there's another character. Jesus ends up healing his daughter, and we're told his name. His name is Jairus. Jairus is named. So why give Jairus a name, but leave the bleeding woman in the story unnamed? Uh, Another example, Jesus interacts with all kinds of Pharisees in the Gospels, and they remain unnamed. We don't know who they are. We just know that they are Pharisees. But then Jesus goes to dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, and he's named once again. Why? There are numerous demonized people who Jesus set free, and yet they remain unnamed in the Gospels. But when it comes to Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chosa, and Susanna, they are named. Once again, why? After his resurrection, Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we're told that one of them was named Cleopas, but the other person remains unnamed. And it's hard to find a reason why to leave one person anonymous and Tell us the name of the other person. Well, Richard Bauckham suggests that nearly every time that Luke uses a name in his gospel, outside of the names that were just well-known public figures, like Herod, Herodias, Caiaphas, and Pilate, and, and then outside of a few characters who would have already been dead at the time the story was being told. Outside of those folks, Luke is indicating who his source is. He's telling you who the eyewitness for 
that particular story is. So for instance, the reason that only one person on the road to Emmaus is named, we're told it's Cleopas, it's because Cleopas is Luke's source. He told Luke the story about his own experience on the Emmaus road. That is Richard Bauckham's theory, and it certainly resonates with me. Behind Luke's writing, behind every story, every parable, stand hours of listening, like a good journalist, listening to each one tell their story. We are indebted to Luke sitting and listening to Joanna, to Susanna, to Peter, to Andrew, etc., relay their stories. These are the people who were there from the beginning. They are the living voices, and when Luke uses their name, he's telling you who told him the story. So Luke includes stories about Jesus' infancy and much of his teaching and his parables that can't be found anywhere else. Over 40% of the stories found in the Gospel of Luke are stories that you they're original. You don't find them anywhere else. They are living voices. Luke took on a massive project. He wrote more of the New Testament than any other biblical writer. Luke wrote more than the Apostle Paul. He wrote two back-to-back volumes, the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles. Each book covers a 30-year span of time, roughly, which you add that up and it's like, man, it's a, it's a bit of a side note, but it's worth mentioning that in the book of Acts, Luke switches from they language to we language as if he himself has become a living voice. He is suddenly like a participant in the story in Acts that shows up first in Acts 16.10. And to add on to this, numerous biblical scholars think that Lucius of Cyrene, who is named as a leader of the church in Antioch in Acts 13.1, is actually the same person as Luke, the author. Uh, Lucius was a common variant for the name Luke, and they think it's possibly his way of mentioning himself without saying, look at me, look at me. Uh, So there's this ancient document called the Muratorian Canon, and it places Luke the doctor as living in Antioch, which happens to be the same place as Lucius of Cyrene, same place where he lived and was a leader in the church, which would point to them possibly being one and the same person. Now, there's no way of confirming this, but there there are biblical scholars that say, This is certainly a possibility. What's interesting is if Luke was the same person as Lucius of Cyrene, then the most prolific writer of the New Testament was dark-skinned and was from Africa. Cyrene is northern Africa. Uh, Not everyone thinks of a black person writing the bulk of the New Testament. But at any rate, back to the eyewitnesses, And the living voices, the problem with eyewitnesses and living voices is that they move away and they get sick and they get killed and they die. 
and now you are only left with your memory of what they said. Unless you somehow capture what they said ahead of time. And to the best of his ability, Luke did just that. But how do we relate to eyewitness testimony to a living voice after those people are dead? I want to invite you to consider a modern version of eyewitness testimony and living voices as a way of getting at this question. So the, the Fortune Off video archive is a collection of over 4,400 testimonies of Holocaust survivors. These testimonies have also been recorded in print in Lawrence Langer's book, Holocaust Testimonies, The Ruins of Memory. Talk about a collection of eyewitness testimony of events that are hard to fathom, hard to imagine, at the limits of what you might think possible. Many, but not all, of the eyewitnesses have already died, and yet their stories are still massively impacting. So I want to share one story that comes from a woman named Edith P. Edith had already spent some time at Auschwitz. She was traveling in a crowded cattle car to a labor site. And this is what she says in her unrehearsed testimony. She says, one morning, I think it was morning or early afternoon, we arrived. The train stopped for an hour. Why? We don't know. A friend of mine said, why don't you stand up? There was just a little window with bars. And I said, I can't. I don't have enough energy to climb up. And she said, I'm going to sit down and you're going to stand on my shoulders. And I did. And I looked out. And I saw paradise. The sun was bright and vivid, and there was cleanliness all over. It was a station somewhere in Germany. There were three or four people there. One woman had a child, nicely dressed up. The child was crying. People were people, not animals. And I thought, paradise must look like this. I forgot already how normal people look like, how they act and how they speak, how they dress. I saw the sun in Auschwitz. I saw the sun come up because we had to get up at four in the morning, but it was never beautiful to me. I never saw it shine. It was just the beginning of a horrible day, and in the evening, it was the end of what? But here... There was life, and I had such a yearning. I still feel it in my bones. I had such a yearning to live, to run, to just run away and never come back, to run to the end where there's no way back. And I told the girls, I said, girls, you have no idea how beautiful the sun is. And I saw a baby crying, and a woman was kissing that baby. Is there such a thing as love? And that is the end of Edith's testimony. First-hand testimony, eyewitness account. Now, how does that eyewitness testimony strike you? 
Did you find yourself doubting the authenticity of Edith's testimony as you listened? Or did you find yourself caught up in the moment, caught up in the emotions, almost as if Edith had somehow transported you to the window in that cattle car, even though that's impossible? Or is it? UCLA faculty Lisa Crone has spent her career looking at neurology, brain science, and, and how our brains are hardwired to engage stories. And she points out that functional MRI brain scans actually show that when you are lost in a good story, the same areas of your brain light up as if you were actually doing or experiencing what the main character is doing or experiencing. Our brains are hardwired to engage stories. And she says that when you get caught up in a story, like the story that I just read, she says you're not just reading about Edith P. But as far as brain function is concerned, you are Edith P. In that moment, that is who you become. You are experiencing her experience. Or to use the Gospel of Luke, you're not just reading about Mary or Zachariah or Cleopas. You are Mary or Zacharias or Cleopas. People are drawn in by stories. They don't want to read it out of a book. They want to hear it from the living a living voice. That's why people love TED Talks and podcast interviews. More than information, they want story. They want the living voice. Stories are how we learn without risking our own lives. And what's fascinating is that we actually change when we get caught up in a different story. Research has shown that People can try to explain something to someone else using facts and figures and logic until they're both blue in the face because they talk past one another. But when they start telling one another stories, they're actually able to enter a different space in their brain and a space where they can grow and listen and learn and change. So think back to the Edith P. story. You could have been sitting here feeling like your life is a prison, like your life is dark, like your life is hard, and then you listen to Edith P's story. And it's just a story, but something changes inside of you. You listen to her talking about being inside that cattle car and looking out and seeing the sun. And somehow your life doesn't look the same as you're looking out at your life. Stories change us, even stories from dead people, still living voices. When the biblical story becomes our story, and not just a story, but our story, it can change us. Rich Vladis says it this way, as a question, who are you allowing to speak into your life? What are the stories you're opening yourself to? 
even in the books that we read, the music that we listen to, I think that there's moving close to someone that isn't necessarily a physical proximity. Sometimes it's an emotional proximity. Sometimes it's narrative proximity. It's trying to understand someone's story. How much emotional and narrative proximity have you given yourself to Luke's living voices? Luke was limited. He didn't have a video camera. He didn't have unlimited film. He had a roll of papyrus. They came in 35 to 40 foot lengths. And he used all of it to condense 30 years worth of stories about Jesus from numerous, numerous eyewitnesses that he hopes can become your story, your living voice. What if Luke sat with these people and listened to their story and has truly written what was most profound, most life-changing, most significant about their experience and what might happen if you tried reading the Gospel of Luke like this, like a story coming from the living voice? What if Luke is doing his best to be the medium, the go-between, to almost disappear in order to make it happen, for you to be so caught up in the story, the living voice, that you become the storytellers, the different storytellers. You become Elizabeth, feeling your baby jumping inside of you, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You become Mary as a young mother, keeping everything in your heart because you don't know where else to go with it and turning it over and over and over pondering that swirl of questions and thoughts in your mind. What does it mean that you were impregnated by God and that this little child crawling around in the dirt is somehow of God, is God? Or you become Cleopas out on the road, feeling what it feels like for your heart to burn because this guy you just met on the road is a dead ringer for Jesus but he can't be Jesus because he can't be, because that can't be, because Jesus is dead and this guy's not dead and just can't be. How might this story change you? Even without being certain how to explain it all, if you simply gave this story emotional proximity, narrative proximity, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the reliability of the things you have been taught. So this is my challenge to you this week. Try beginning to read the Gospel of Luke as if Luke isn't even there. As if it's just you and the storyteller, the living voice, the eyewitness, and see what happens. So a final discussion question, a reflection question. Have you ever experienced allowing yourself to become caught up 
in one of the Gospels, in the same way as when you've listened to an eyewitness testimony such as Edith P's testimony? What factors do you think affect this? Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.